Our Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for your word, the Bible, and for the wisdom that it contains, and also the, the records of the deeds that you have done. And Lord, we thank you for Palm Sunday and the things that were done that day and the meaning of them. And I pray now as we look at your word and we look at uh, the events of Palm Sunday, I pray that you would help us to see why we celebrate this day and that we would see what it means to, for you to enter as king. And Father, give us the wisdom and give us the courage to know the truth and to know how to do it. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday, and next Sunday is Easter, of course. And this is the week in which uh, uh, we celebrate the events that took place during the most important week that has ever happened, um, the last week of Jesus' life on earth before he was crucified died, buried in the grave, and then rose from the dead. And that's why we're having these special services next week, uh, coming up in, uh, in, in Holy Week. We're going to be right here at 3300 Spinard, where we'll be having Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, as Mike already described. And, uh, and then on Sunday, we got those two Easter services celebrating the resurrection on Sunday. So for those of you who are the regular Thursday crowd, come on Thursday, be part of the Monday, Thursday celebration, but then you still have to come again on Sunday because Easter is Sunday and you need to be there at Wendler on Sunday. I was thinking about that a little bit um, and I was remembering last Easter. I don't know how much you guys remember last Easter, but I remember it well because it was in the early days when the church was shut down and we were doing only online and we weren't even getting together to record at that time. We were recording all of our own bits and separate things and then having to piece it all together and it was it was uh, less than ideal. <laughs> but uh, we are so glad that we are able this year to be together again for Easter. So I really want to encourage you to, uh, to, be, to come on down. We're taking the proper precautions, and you can come and be part of one of our in-person services um, on Easter Sunday. But today is Palm Sunday, and it is the start of what we often refer to as Holy Week. And the things that we will be celebrating this week are the things that happened during that last incredible week of Jesus' life on earth. And this week was, uh, was considered super important by the guys who wrote the stories of Jesus that we have in our Bibles. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, that one week takes up eight out of the 28 chapters of his book. In Mark, it is six out of the 16 total chapters. In Luke, that last week is five out of his 24 chapters. And then in John, which we're going to be looking at more today, um, it's uh, nine out of 21 chapters is all about that one week. Now, Jesus' ministry lasted somewhere around three years. And yet about a quarter or more of the gospel stories are all about this one week. The other 150 weeks, get the other part of it. Um, and, uh, and when the rest of the Bible talks about Jesus and his earthly ministry and the things he did on earth, they talk almost exclusively about what he did in this last week. So, so it's important. 
So let's celebrate uh, the historical events of this most important week that's ever happened in the history of the world. So schedule some time this week to spend some extra time reading your Bible, read those sections of the Bible about the events of Holy Week, spend some extra time in prayer um, thanking God for, for these events, and then, of course, try to make it to, to some of these extra services that we're having. Now, Jesus began the events of Holy Week by doing something that was very unusual for his uh, time of ministry on earth. Um, he put on a big public show, and he encouraged people to publicly dis- declare that he was the messianic king of Israel. Now, that, this is surprising because throughout most of his ministry, Jesus deliberately tried to keep a lid on that. And there's several stories where he would do a miracle, he'd heal somebody, and then he would tell them, hey, look, don't tell anybody what happened, right? Don't tell anybody. Because he, he knew that if word got out about him too widely and to too many people, they would uh, pretty quickly... Uh, things would ramp up and he would not be able to continue to teach and to train his disciples and to do the things that he felt that he needed to do before things got to that point. But now, Jesus is done with that. He's done trying to tamp down uh, the, his, his fame and things and he comes into Jerusalem with this big show. Um, His time had come, and he was ready to publicly stake his claim to be the Messiah and to confront those authorities that uh, he knew would oppose him. Of course, he also knew that they would indeed succeed in putting him to death. Uh, But more than that, he knew that he would not stay dead and that he would raise from the dead and all attempts to silence him and put an end to, uh, to his, uh, his, way, his teachings and things, was, uh, and, and to try to stop people from thinking that he was Messiah, that would all fail miserably. And in fact, his death would later be celebrated as Good Friday, the day when the sins of the world were paid for, and, and, uh, and our debt was settled, and justice was satisfied. And so because Jesus knew all that, he arranged the events of Palm Sunday. It was the time of the Passover festival, right? So the Passover was one of a couple of times during the year when all the Jews were encouraged to come to Jerusalem uh, on pilgrimage to participate in this uh, big festival in Jerusalem at the temple. And so Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire made that big pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this annual event. Of course, people that lived really far away didn't come every year. Uh, travel was very difficult in those days, but they would come as much as they could. And the people who lived closer by, the people who were lucky enough to live in Israel, would come to Jerusalem every spring. And many of the people who lived in Galilee, which is where Jesus did most of his ministry, was up in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. Many of those people had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And the crowds were even bigger than normal this particular year because uh, Jesus was getting famous and people were expecting something's going to happen. 
Jesus is going to do something here. We want to see what's going to happen. So there was a lot of people and a lot of excitement around the Passover this year. And Jesus and his disciples had come, but they were not staying in Jerusalem. They were staying in a nearby town, kind of out in the suburbs from Jerusalem. And they arrived, and then it was Sabbath on the Saturday, and so nothing much happened on the Sabbath. But then Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, Jesus made his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And there was a big celebratory parade in the way that rulers would often enter into the cities. And here's the story from John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 12. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, there are several parts of what happened here that, uh, that are, are, are just full of significance, but it requires a little explanation for people uh, like us who are living thousands of years later um, that were obvious to the people then, but we need a little explanation. First, the, the waving of palm branches. We got all these palms here and there on the floor and up here on the stage and stuff uh, because the people waved palm branches on Palm Sunday. Um, Now, they did this as a way that people would celebrate. This was a normal thing that they would do when they were were celebrating. It was a little bit like dropping confetti or uh, shooting off fireworks or something. These people would wave palm branches, and especially used to celebrate military victories. See, when a king went off to fight in a battle or in a war, and then after he was victorious and he came back to his home city, there would be a big uh, kind of processional parade, a victory parade, as he would enter the city. And the people of the city would come out of the gates and cheer and wave palm branches as he would come riding in, just like what Jesus was doing here. And the palm branches uh, were especially significant for uh, the Jewish people because they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. See, in these days, of course, uh, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. They were not an independent nation. But there was a strong independence movement in Israel of people who wanted to break free from Rome. And in fact, uh, it doesn't really come into our story, but they did attempt to break free from Rome uh, about 30 years after the events of Palm Sunday. They rebelled, and the Romans came in and, uh, and defeated them. But during that short time when they uh, declared their independence, they minted coins. And what was on their coins? Palm branches, uh, because that was a symbol of their national movement. Um, So Jesus, having a crowd of cheering people, meet him outside the city gates as he was coming in, as they were shouting and waving palm branches, was a very important symbolic thing. But in addition to that symbolism, there was also the words that the people were saying. Those were not symbolism. They were just straightforward declarations. Here's what they said. They said, Hosanna, which the literal meaning of Hosanna is save. 
Um, it had come to mean just kind of a word that people would shout, kind of like hooray or something that would just be their, uh, their, what they would shout to celebrate things. But both meanings really fit this, uh, this situation. They're cheering, they're happy that Jesus is coming into town, and they are yelling, save, save us. Um, and then secondly, uh, they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does that mean to, uh, to come in the name of the Lord? Uh, it's a little bit like that old phrase that uh, policemen used to shout. I don't know if they really shouted this all this much, but they did in the TV shows I used to watch as a kid. They would say, stop in the name of the law. Well, what does that mean to say stop in the name of the law? Well, they're saying not just stop because I'm saying stop. They're saying my command to stop has the authority of the law behind it. And you should stop not just because I'm saying it, but because the law demands that you stop. So they're speaking for the law. And that's a little bit like what's happening here. As Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord, he is coming as God's representative with God's authority as he's entering into the city. And then they say, blessed is the king of Israel. Um, that one doesn't really take much explanation. It's pretty straightforward. They're just explicitly declaring that Jesus should be the king. And of course, uh, in Luke's telling of this event, uh, it's not mentioned here in John, but, but Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees came and, and tried to get Jesus to quiet them down. Jesus, uh, Jesus, tell people to stop saying these things. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want this to be said. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to quiet them down. Uh, Jesus endorsed exactly what they were doing and exactly what they were saying. And then the final part of the scene, as John describes it here, is Jesus' mount. He's riding on a young donkey. And to be sure that we don't miss the significance of that, John quotes from the prophet Zechariah, who said, uh, Jesus found, or it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written... Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is a way to refer to the city of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So why would a king be riding on a donkey? Wouldn't it be much more impressive if he was riding in like a chariot, being pulled by big strong horses, or maybe riding on a big War horse, and we do know that that both riding in chariots or riding on a horse was what Roman generals and Roman emperors would do when they would return um, to for, from their uh, their big victory parades. But in Jewish culture, a donkey was also considered to be a kingly mount. But there was a different time that you would ride a donkey as compared to when you would ride in a chariot or ride a war horse. Um, a king coming riding on a donkey indicated his humility and his peacefulness. And this showed that although Jesus was in agreement with the declaration that he was the king, uh, the kingship that he was bringing to Jerusalem that day was different than the kingship that many of the people were expecting. Many were hoping that Jesus would be a king who would lead them to throw off Roman rule. But Jesus entered Jerusalem riding as a king on a donkey, a humble and peaceful king, 
not a proud and warlike king. And the nature of Jesus' kingship and the significance of all of what was happening here was easily misunderstood or easy to miss. In fact, John specifically mentions that he himself and the rest of the disciples did not understand what was going on here. It says, at first, that his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, which Jesus was glorified as John's way of referring to the death and resurrection, only after Jesus died and was rose again, uh, uh, did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So, but what does that mean? Did they not understand that Jesus was entering Jerusalem as king? Well, I think they, they had to have understood that, right? People were literally shouting, you know, welcome to the king. Um, blessed is the king of Israel. But I think even though maybe they didn't quite get all the kingly symbolism here, what they really didn't understand was the kind of king that Jesus was and the kind of kingdom that he was bringing in on that day. And that's what I want to take the rest of our time here to talk about is what kind of a king is Jesus? Now, a few days later, um, Jesus is on trial before the Roman uh, governor. And uh, the Roman governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And here's Jesus' reply. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. You see, Pilate does not understand what Jesus means here. But it's clear enough to him that Jesus was not actually ha having an intention of setting up as a political ruler. And so Pilate goes back to Jesus' accusers and tells him, look, I found no basis for a charge against Jesus. So not a political ruler, not setting up that kind of a kingdom. So what then does it mean to say that Jesus is a king? If he's not going to be a political leader, what is he? He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. What does that mean? Is he king of Mars or something? No, he's, he, well, it says, uh, as we read the Gospels, if we read through the teachings of Jesus throughout the stories about Jesus here in the Bible, we see that Jesus, Jesus often talks about the kingdom of God. And he, say, he says a lot of his parables start out with, the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a little story that illustrates some truth about the kingdom. And, and so there's a lot of teaching about the kingdom throughout uh, the gospel stories. And here's my summary of what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom is his rule. It begins in the hearts of people when they choose to give him the lordship of their lives and submit themselves to him. And it grows in the hearts of people when we learn to submit more and more of our lives to his rule, bringing ourselves into line with his will. When we do the will of God, we demonstrate the kingdom of God is at work within us. Jesus is king 
when he is king of individual people who choose to submit to his rule in their lives. And there are two kind of parts to Jesus' kingship in our individual lives. First is the initial point of decision in which we say to God, I submit to you. I acknowledge your ways are better than my ways. Your wisdom is greater than my wisdom. And you love me and you want what is best for me. And so I give myself to you. I put my faith in you as my Savior and Lord. That's the initial part of entering into God's kingdom when Jesus becomes king of your life. And then the second part of Jesus' kingship in our individual lives comes when we learn to really follow through with that commitment. Because here's the thing, when people say, I submit to your rule, I trust in you, we don't actually do a very good job of doing that. We don't do a very good job of submitting to him and and living according to his laws. You see, we want to do things our own way. Our will is strong, and God's way doesn't always seem to us like the best way of doing things. Or sometimes, even when we know that something is wrong, we do it anyway, because there's some kind of a short-term payoff that we feel like, hey, I want that short-term payoff, I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it because it's, it's going to be, it's going to give me something that I want right now. Or sometimes we fear the displeasure of other people more than we fear God. Or for all those reasons and more, deciding to follow God and make him the king of your life is, is the beginning of a new stage of your spiritual journey. It is a necessary beginning If you don't ever take that step, then Jesus is not the king of your life. He is not your savior. You are still in charge of your own life, and you're still responsible for your own sins. And that is not a good place to be, because the end of that is eternal death and separation from God. But that's not how it has to be. You can today decide to give Jesus the kingship of your life. And you can join the crowd that wave palm branches and welcomes Jesus to rule. And you can change your destiny. You can be destined for eternal life and friendship with God. So you can begin that journey that we call sanctification, which means being made holy. You are not currently holy. I am not currently holy, but you can be on the journey toward holiness as I am. That's what Jesus meant when he told that Roman judge, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not a king of a political nation state. He is the king of people in every nation around the world who have put their faith in him. His ruling is continuing to spread today around the world as more and more people uh, submit to him and put their faith in him. And his kingdom is spreading in each one of us to dominate more and more areas of our lives as we grow in holiness and as we grow in conformity to his will. But is there a sense in which Jesus' kingdom goes beyond 
the inner spiritual life of individual Christians? Is the kingdom of God only a personal reality, or is it also having a, a, a broader effect on society? Yes, it does have a wider scope that affects all of society, and it does this in, in two different ways. Um, ultimately, Jesus' rule will be brought to fulfillment in the eternal kingdom. Right? When, when Jesus returns, uh, then the wor- his work in our hearts will be complete, and we will be fully sanctified, um, and we will be fully in line with his will. But also, at that time, the whole world will be brought in line under his control, and all things on earth will be done as they are in heaven. And that will happen at the end of the age when Jesus returns. And at that time, he will set up a political kingdom that he will rule over. And that is the ultimate fulfillment of the Palm Sunday celebration. When he comes back, the Bible tells us that we will meet him as he descends to earth. And we will uh, celebrate with him just like the people did on that Palm Sunday. And we will go there and we will shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel, and that will be the ultimate fulfillment of all of Palm Sunday and the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' rule. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the Bible teaches that the kingdom has actually already begun, not only in our own personal hearts and minds, but also in our world. Jesus taught us to pray this Uh, in the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not just a prayer for Jesus to return, although, of course, that's when it will be perfectly done that way. But even now, it is a prayer that the flawed world that we live in will come to reflect more and more the perfect will of God that the way that things are on earth will become more like they should be, that sin and the effects of sin will be reduced. And this is why Christians are called to feed the hungry. And this is why Christians are called to oppose injustice. This is why Christians are called to help those who are suffering. This is why Christians are called to heal the hurting. This is why Christians are called to do all kinds of good in our world. Because when we bring one small part of the world closer to God's ideal, we are bringing Jesus' kingship to that small part of the world. Because when Christians led the way to abolish slavery in this country, they were bringing the kingship of Jesus to fruition in that area. Because when the Christian preacher, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, led our country to get rid of racist laws, he was bringing Jesus' kingship to that area of public life. And this means that Christians should be involved in trying to bring our society closer to God's ideal closer to the way that God would have it. We should be praying and working to see all things in society done on earth as they are in heaven. 
Christians should be working to live in a land of justice and righteousness, a land free from oppression and evil. And how do we go about this? Well, clearly one way to do it is to spread uh, the gospel message. That will spread the kingdom of God. The more people in our world who are living lives submitted to God's rule, the better. More Christians means more people in heaven for eternity, and it also means a better world right now. But our work needs to be more than only the preaching and teaching about God. The Bible tells us in a couple of passages I'm going to read quickly here. First one, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with words, or let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then in another place, the Bible says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, in both of those passages, a religion that is only about words and what you say or about the inner beliefs is condemned as a deficient form of of religion. And both of these examples use helping the physical needs of the poor as an illustration of the kinds of actions that we are supposed to be about. The kingship of Jesus in our lives should result in our work in helping the poor. People suffering in poverty is not things being done on earth as they are in heaven. And of course, that's just one way that our society includes things that are out of step with the justice and righteousness of God. Human trafficking, drug abuse, theft, spousal abuse, those are all obvious examples of things that Christians should oppose. But it is also the tragedy of people suffering from preventable and treatable diseases, and we should be seeking to bring Jesus' kingship to rule in those situations, too. In fact, there's many areas in our world where we can do good and bring Jesus' kingship to areas of our world. So how do we do that? Well, on a small scale, we can simply be a good neighbor to the person near us. We can be kind and generous and compassionate toward those who are suffering right around us that we happen to come in contact with. Secondly, we can get involved in organizations that are bringing the world more in line with the kingdom. Locally, there's places like the Downtown Soup Kitchen or Habitat for Humanity or many others that are seeking to uh, alleviate the suffering of people who are suffering from sin. And then there's organizations working um, to end sinful elements in our society on a national level, or even on a global scale. Organizations like Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, Destiny Rescue, Free Burma Rangers are a great example of a group that is 
going into places where things are not being done the way God wants them to be done. And they're going in there and helping and bringing Jesus' kingship to people who are suffering from the effects of war. And these are all ways that Christians can and should be making Palm Sunday a bigger reality in our world. And there's one other way, too, that I want to mention that we should be involved. Christians have a role to play in politics, too. For Christians, politics should be a way for us to influence our culture to be more in line with the will of God. If we can have influence that will see our nation's laws be more in line with godly justice, if we can influence our government's budgets to be spent on things that reduce the suffering in the world caused by sin and bring our society closer to a godly ideal, if we can do those things, we are called to do them. One of the things that I do in order to educate myself about politics and about these kinds of issues is I listen to the Church Politics Podcast. I recommend it. It's from the AND campaign. And they try to help Christians have a truly Christian perspective on our current national political uh, issues. And here is part of the AND campaign's reason for talking about God and politics. They say, as Christians, we are called to civic and community engagement. We have a duty to impact culture in a manner that reflects the truth and love of Jesus Christ. This commission includes participation in the political arena, wherein actions or inactions can have a profound effect on all aspects of society. Did you catch that last part? Our actions or our inaction can have a profound effect on our society. How exactly we're to go about getting involved in politics is, of course, a matter of a lot of debate these days. And uh, even exactly what political positions uh, Christians should be supporting, we have some disagreements about that. And our church, as well as the rest of the country, um, have different ideas. And we are somewhat divided on uh, how we think we should best seek God's will in the political arena. But one avenue that is not open to us is to simply bow out and keep silent. But whatever political positions you believe will bring about a more just and righteous society, let us engage in a way that is motivated by love and motivated by a desire to see God's will being done in the world in a way that shows the love of God to the people around us, including the people on the other side of the political divide. So, on Palm Sunday, Jesus declared himself and the people declared him to be the king of Israel and to be our king. And there are several ways that that is true. He should be the king of each of our lives as individuals. And I don't know where you are on that. I I encourage you to do some self-evaluation right now. Have you submitted your life to his rule? Have you made that decision to say, 
not my will, but your will be done. I will choose to follow your lead, even when it doesn't seem right to me, I will choose to do things God's way. And when we do submit ourselves to God and we put our faith in him in that way, he takes over our lives and also his payment for sins that he makes on Good Friday will come to pay for your sins. But many of us here have already taken that step. Our place now in terms of Jesus ruling in our lives is to work toward a greater and greater uh, reality to that decision. Our sanctification, our being made holy is where we are. So what is your next step in terms of your sanctification? What do you need to do to grow closer to God's ideal and to make your life more in line with God's rule in your life? So... There are many things that we could do to, to do that, and, and, and one of the things is to get involved in the work that God has called us to do as Christians, because we are to be bringing his kingdom into the world. What are you doing to bring God's kingdom into the greater society around you? We must be involved in the work of God, in the work of his kingdom. That is what we are called to. And I encourage you to find ways that you can get involved in seeing God's kingdom spreading throughout Anchorage and throughout our country and throughout the world. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care enough to send Jesus to declare himself king, and we thank you that you accept our offer of service when we bring it to you. Lord, we need you. We need you to overrule our foolishness and lead us in the way that we should live. I ask that you do this in my life and in the lives of all these people here. May your kingdom come to dominate Anchorage. May your kingdom come to dominate our country and may your kingdom come to dominate our world. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God's kingdom is here and his kingdom is coming. Oh man, that is such a cool thing to praise God about. And it's because of the cross that we get to be part of his kingdom, that we get to be part of bringing his kingdom into this earth. Uh, and this next song is a new song. We're introducing it uh, just for Easter next week. Uh, but it says, Hallelujah for the cross. Because of the cross, his, his work is, he is at work, and we get to be a part of it. So as you're comfortable, go ahead and just join in singing. Uh, but let's go ahead and stand as we sing the song together. I would be hopeless without your goodness. I would be desperate without your love. Slave to the darkness. 